And we've been using a variety of spiritual disciplines to help us understand those things that, that help us to enjoy God, enjoy the Trinity, enjoy the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've looked at how we should kind of slow down in the way that we take in Scripture. I know we live in a fast-paced world, and a lot of times we want to just take it in as, as it goes, but we, we, learned, we looked at that we should slow down as we read, slow down as we meditate and chew on the Word. We looked at um, even considering some things in, in memorization. We've pondered some formats and methods and how we can pray and how we should um, commune with God and how in response we can worship. We talked about how we can witness and share the good news. We even talked about how we can deny ourselves, delighting in God as we deny ourselves certain things. And it's been, a, it's been so fun getting to talk with a few different folks about how you guys have chosen to deny yourselves in different ways. Not just taking one thing over the whole course of Lent, but maybe choosing to fast one week at a time on, on, on various different things. But this week we come to a um, we come to a a discipline that in many ways is really more of a mindset than it is a discipline. It's a it's a way of thinking that changes how we look at the world around us. That affects how we look at the world around us, and that is this idea of stewardship. Now I, I know that for a lot of us, if you've grown up into church, you know that stewardship is just the way that a lot of pastors and church leaders like to convey money, right? We, and so I know people are like, oh, nope, I, I'm holding on to my wallet. Well, don't. I, I feel like when we, when we limit stewardship to money, we shortchange so much of what stewardship is. It's way more. Even as I was looking at this this week, one of the challenges I had in thinking about this idea of stewardship is that it is so expansive. Is that working better now? Oh, there we go. I'd much rather do that. Thanks, Nathan and Francis. So as we think about this today, I want us to think about two truths. And I want us to think through a few implications. And even in, in thinking about those implications, we are really only going to scratch the surface of what this can entail. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at a lot of different passages this morning. <clears throat> Genesis, we're going to start in Genesis. But I want us to start with this truth. And this truth is that everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And we see this initially in the very first pages, very first verse of Scripture, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because God is the creator, the maker, the originator of everything, everything belongs to him. And just as, as the originator, God gets to define what is and establish its purposes and set its objectives. God is the one who not only puts in motion all things, but then defines what that motion should look like. Just as an inventor or engineer or author or composer defines the purposes for which he or she might create something, so too God on a much bigger scale defines the purposes for all that he has created. And we could simplify it. We could boil it all down. In fact, I'm reading a, a really good book right now by John Piper, a huge book, I don't know, seven, 800 pages long, 
called Providence. And in that book, Piper boils everything that God does down to one thing, and that is for his glory. So when we look at our lives, everything about our lives should be for his glory. But let's think about this concept from another perspective, that everything belongs to God. The psalmist in Psalm 24, 1 to 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Not only did God create everything, but he filled it. Everything is his. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it looks, it takes that same concept a little bit of, in, in a little bit of a different way. It says, behold the Lord, or behold Yahweh, your God. Behold to the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And I want us to understand that for people in the Old Testament, for God's people, for the Jews in the patriarchal times, this would have been a radical thing for them to think about one God being the, being the God over everything. You see, in their culture, so many of their contemporaries were polytheists. They had a God for this and a God for that, a deity for that and, and a deity for this. In fact, if we go back and look at all the plagues in Egypt, remember when, when, <coughs> excuse me, when the Israelites were in Egypt and Moses was battling with Pharaoh, really God was battling with Pharaoh, all of those plagues really began to be God's way of proving to the Egyptians and to the Israelites that he was better than all those deities. He was better than the sun god. He was better than the god of the seas. He was better than the Egyptian god of plants and animals and all that kind of stuff. He was the god of gods. He is the only god. But beyond that, in the New Testament, it discusses how all things are continually held together by God. In fact, more specifically, in this case, by Christ. Look at Colossians 1, 15 to 17. It says, he meaning Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." See, let me just think about that. We, we've used this phrase, Trinity, delighting, discipline, delight in the Trinity. And we haven't really talked too much about all that that entails. But let me just make an aside very briefly here. And that when we look at it, a lot of times when we think, I don't know what you do, but when I'm reading scripture, when I'm reading the Old Testament, I, a lot of times I, I read the Old Testament and think God the Father. I don't often think about God the Son, but one of the things that, or God the Spirit even, unless the, the Spirit of God is working through the, the prophets. But one of the things we see in creation is that God, the Father, the Trinity, spoke. What does the New Testament say the Word of God is? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus Christ. So that's why in Colossians here when it says all things were created through him and for him, Jesus Christ is the means by which the Trinity created all things. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Holy Spirit was there filling and, and, and existing in all things. 
And so when we look at the physical, as Christians, as people who worship God, when we look at the physical world, when we, when we look at the natural world, we can look at that and think, yeah, God, everything that God made, truly made, the plants and animals, the seas, the mountains, the stars, the planets, the sun, the moon, we look at that and we think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. God made all that. But what about the things that I made? What about the job that I have, the job that I earned? What about the house that I purchased. Is that God's too? And I think in many ways, yes. You see, God is the one who provided the means by which we acquire all the things that we have. He provided the initial skill and I think planted in each of us the desire for certain things. Scripture even tells us that God provides seed to the sower essentially giving us what we need to produce the things that we might create. So all things that exist are God's. But there's a second truth I think that we need to understand is that God entrusted his creation, or really God entrusted all things to humans. On the sixth day of creation, God created animals and he created humans. And upon completion of creating humans, when he was all done, he, he provided for Adam and Eve, those first humans, what many have called the creation mandate, where he essentially said this in Genesis 1, 28 to 30, he said, it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every plant with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth you shall and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food and it was so. So I think that by, by God entrusting all that is his to us, God has essentially placed humans in the role of steward or manager or overseer. We have been endowed with stewardship responsibilities. We have been given permission to use, to cultivate, to rule, and to care for all that is his for the time that we get to have breath and life here on earth. But I want us to think about a couple of the words in, the, in that mandate, just for a moment. He, he begins by saying, be fruitful and multiply. I think it's not difficult for us to understand that basically God is, is telling Adam and Eve, he's saying, go have kids and have your kids have kids. Make lots of children all over the world. And I think generally they and us have done a good job. There are now roughly 8 billion people walking on this planet. We have filled the earth pretty well. Now, there are some people who would say we've overfilled it. Other people are saying we need to keep going. When does the creation mandate end? But we are called to fill the earth, to multiply and fill the earth. But I want us to think about this. In order to fill it, what does it take to really be fruitful and multiply? It's far more than procreation. 
or having babies. It's cultivating an environment where life can flourish. It's caring for things in a way that promotes life in so many different ways. And this begins to get into some of the implications. And, and I want you to be thinking about this. I'm going to just suggest a few things. But as I said, this is only going to scratch the surface. So this idea is that our policies then, policies that we have around us, laws, rules, should be there in such a way that promotes life, that promotes fruitfulness. What we do with the environment should be something that can sustain life for a long period of time. What we do with our speech, we should have speech that promotes life into other people's lives, that is fruitful in other people's lives. But another set of words that I think that we should consider in this mandate is subdue and have dominion over there are some who say that this subjugation and dominion means that we can do whatever we want with the planet. And to be fair, these are strong words. <coughs> Excuse me. And in the wrong hands, they have oppressive outcomes. But think about this environmentally for a moment. If we make the planet uninhabitable, then there is nothing over which we can have stewardship. God has given us the planet to steward. And if we destroy it, there's nothing then to steward. And so we can't be fruitful and multiply. On the other hand, some, some of us would have humans diminished to the point where the only life, life on earth that is worthy of living is plants and animals. And so they would say humans just need to go away. Well, if we don't exist, then we can't steward the things that God has given us. So there's a balance there. Politically, the role of government is ideally to protect its people and to keep its society safe. So the laws, the rules, the people we elect need to be people who will promote that kind of fruitfulness, that kind of multiplication, that kind of life and flourishing. On a grand scale, if we act environmentally or politically in ways that harm, we are not demonstrating dominion or subjugation as stewards, but in many ways we're acting as destroyers. So with those two truths in mind, one, that all things are God's, and second, that he has entrusted what is his to us, it seems like there are a bunch of implications of stewardship, a bunch of things that this touches. And I, and I need to be frank, we can, we could, a sermon like this, a topic like this, a discipline like this, it would be easy just to say, oh, let me pull on these hot button issues. And you might have different hot button issues than I have. You might have different interests than I have. And so the challenge is we could just touch on this and never really get to the bottom of what all this means. And so I do want to just pull on a few things. <coughs> Excuse me and have us think about a few things. But I want to encourage you, maybe this afternoon or in your community group, look at some other ways. What else does stewardship touch? What part of our lives do we need to be thinking about? But let's think about this. There's one commodity that we all have, and that commodity is limited, and it's a commodity that we don't know when it'll be up, and that commodity is time. 
Time is fleeting. It's the one resource that we can never get back. We can't make more of it. As much as people want to go through time travel, (coughs) we can't get any more time. We are encouraged in Scripture to redeem or make the most of our time. We don't know how much we'll have. In fact, I was thinking this morning about different people's lives, people whose lives were taken at an early age. There's a guy named Michane who was a pastor in, in the, on the British Isles, and he died around age 30. But even today, there's a Bible reading program that he started in his young life that people are continuing to read. And he just had 30 years on the planet. <clears throat> I mentioned a few, weeks ago, a few weeks ago about this guy named um, Nabil Qureshi. He died at age 33, and yet he impacted people's lives in huge ways. Many of us have read the, the uh, devotional material from Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. Here's another guy who died at a very young age. And yet we're, we're continuing to read and read and read. Actually, you know, a lot of it is because of his wife and his daughter. They took his writings and published them. So we all get to benefit from that. But we don't know how much time we have. So the question is, are we making the most of the time that God has given us. I know I want, I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, Scripture tells us, it reminds us that, we, that it's, it is appointed for humans, for us, once to die. We get to die once, and after that there's a judgment, but we don't know when that day of death is. We only get this life to respond to the grace and love of God. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Understand that what Jesus Christ did on the cross nearly 2,000 years ago, he did so that you could redeem the time that you have on earth and then enjoy God forever. (coughs) So I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, consider that maybe he is calling you. Maybe you need to respond, saying yes in salvation, and then yes, responding in baptism. But since time is fleeting, we need to look at how we can use it wisely. Ephesians 5, 15 to 16 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. We need to look at how we use our time at, at work. Are we the best stewards of our time there? Are we the best stewards of our skills there or at home? Is our time breathing breathing life into our children, into our grandchildren, into, into our neighbors? Or are we keeping it all for ourselves? What about our time with God? Are we making the most of that? Or are we checking boxes and running through? What about in service? And we'll get, get more into service next week. But I think one of the cool things and, and, and one of the things I wrestled with in this this week is that it's easy. If you have like one of those type A personalities where you're go, 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 go all the time, you could look at stewardship and you, you could think, well, I need to be the best steward of my time so I can't sit down, I can't rest at all. I need to go from, from the time I wake up till the time I go to bed. Every moment needs to be useful. And I think it's important that we recognize that God has intentionally created days, hours, seasons of rest. 
So are we truly resting? Are we resting the way that we should? In addition to time, I think we can think about financial resources. Are we managing the finances that God has given us well? Proverbs 27, 23 says, Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. Ecclesiastes eleven six 6 says, In the morning, <coughs> man, I'm sorry. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you don't, do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. I think using, managing our resources well means living within our means. Dave Ramsey, in his, all his financial peace kind of conversations, he, he likes to refer to the fact that we call money currency. And just like the current of water or just like electric currency, it has a movement and it has a flow. So a lot of times resources, financial resources come to us and then we are given stewardship to manage how those are dispersed. Some we need to keep, some we need to give, some we need to spend in various ways, some we need to save for future days. And thinking about that idea of giving in the Old Testament, there was a concept of, called tithing where you would take the first 10%, the first fruits of what you had, and they would divide it out among everything. In fact, it's been so interesting when I've been overseas in, in different churches, people who have small gardens would actually take the first fruits of their gardens and they would present that on the altar at church. So it would be a bunch of rice. Every Sunday there would be rice there for, for the pastor and all that. I'm not saying we should do this, but that's just how they interpreted it. So there'd be rice and vegetables and fruit that they would present as part of their first fruits. But the idea in the Old Testament for tithing was that that first 10% would provide for the needs of the tabernacle or the temple and all the people who worked in it. In the New Testament, we get a practice, it's, it's talked, money is talked about differently and it's talked about not so much in percentages, but in a general generosity of living living open-handed lives. We see in the early part of Acts where people just began to sell their property and they put it all together in a big pot and, and shared it with each other. I've mentioned this before, but our family's practice is that the first 10% on the gross of what we make, what Danielle makes at MCPS and what I make here, that immediately goes back to the church. And then we have a handful of missionaries and ministries that we support that goes over and above that outside of that first 10%. That's just how we've looked at that. That's how we see practicing this idea of giving as an act of worship to God. And you know, as a, as a church, we don't pass the plates around in, or in, in some ways so that we can keep it private between us and God. So whether you do it electronically or whether you sneak something into the box at back, we want to make sure that whatever giving we do is an act of worship between us and God. But I think not only do we need to look at how we manage our, our wealth through giving, we need to think about saving. You know, now, I know for a lot of us, retirement is something that we enjoy. That, we, that For many of you guys, you get to live in that and, and almost have a new area of ministry post-working. Retirement isn't necessarily something that Scripture talks about. They talk about serving the Lord essentially until death. But let me think about one other set of resources. We talked about time. We talked about finances. But the third one is spiritual resources, things that God has given us. 
things that God has endowed to us. We believe, I believe, Scripture tells us that when you become a follower of Christ, you essentially are endowed with gifts, spiritual gifts that you might not have otherwise. And those gifts are intended to be used for his glory in the church and in the world. These are abilities to teach, to serve, to minister, to administrate, to lead, gifts of hospitality, mercy, and so much more. 1 Peter 4, 10 to 11 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. But I hope you noticed in that passage, and I know it wasn't on the screen, and when we use our gifts that God has given us to serve one another, to serve his church, we are then acting as stewards of the very grace that God has given us. It's very clear. So the question is, are we using the gifts that God has given us for his glory? Are we serving where there are needs? Are we making a difference in other people's lives for the glory of God? Or are we simply keeping those for ourselves? Let me just close with a couple of thoughts. And, and I want to encourage you as you think and reflect on the idea of stewardship, as I said before, continue, consider discussing this at home or can, take some folks out to lunch and just think through, well, what else would touch stewardship? How does my marriage get impacted by stewardship? How is, how is my parenting impacted by stewardship? How is my spiritual life? How about my friendships? <coughs> And I know that it can be easy to become so overwhelmed, but I think it is important for us to recognize that not only has God given us all things for his glory, made us stewards over his creation, but he's given us these things for us to use and enjoy, to delight in him. We get to care for all that God has made and all that he has endowed to us but we also get to rest in his grace in that. We get to worship him as we steward all things that he has given us. But I think there's another thing that we should think about, and that is that one day when Jesus Christ comes back, one day when we breathe our last breath, and, our, and, and as scripture says, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. Imagine being able to walk into his presence and to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. May everything we do be with the mindset that we want to serve and please and honor him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the way that you have given us all things. Father, we thank you for the way that you have entrusted all of what you've given us for your glory. So Father, help us to be good stewards. Help us to be people who <clears throat> help us to be people who use well all that you have given us. 
Lord, we pray that we would have your perspective. And in the way that we use these things, that we would delight in your goodness and grace. That not only would we see the spiritual gifts that you've given us, but every resource that you have blessed us with as a means of your grace that we get to steward and share with others. Help us to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to stand as we conclude our time together. Just really.